I'm not sure if you guys have ever seen a show called Kitchen Nightmares with Gordon Ramsay. Um, the premise of the show is that this famous chef with a very colorful language um, goes into a restaurant and it's on the verge of closing. It's, it's just going, it's a nightmare, the, obviously, that's the title of the show. But it, it's so bad and it's usually because either it has really poor management or maybe the food is just terrible. Um, it could be just really old decor that nobody really wants to go in because it smells bad. Um, I remember watching a show one day, though, that the, one of the most shocking episodes that I saw was when he walked into a kitchen and he went into the storeroom of this kitchen and he flipped on the lights and there were just roaches that scattered everywhere. And as your reaction to that, it, it was really gross. And I don't know why I put myself through the torture of watching things like this and then going and eating at places, not knowing what their kitchens look like, but it was, it was just disgusting. And, and the owner that's there standing with them, he's just, he's, they start stuttering or like, oh, well, this, this shouldn't be like this. Uh, it's this guy's fault over here. Um, it's not usually like this. But Gordon usually has to come in and he just has to throw everything out. He just has to start over and he teaches them how to succeed, or sometimes. Um, you know, it's... Maybe it's just me, but I really enjoy seeing broken things being fixed. And I think that's why the show appeals to me, because I like to see when, when people can take something that's not working, it's not functioning, and then they can step in with their expertise or with their knowledge or with their, the, the power that they have to do it. They can come in and they can fix it. And it's, it's just satisfying to see that being done even in a kitchen. And now let me take that and generalize it to where I really want to go today. I think that we live in a broken world. Um, I don't think too many people would fight me on that because anywhere you look, you see people that are suffering, you see people that are making poor choices, and that just leads to more and more and more problems. And as a Christian, we, we learn that we are actually born broken, and we don't need a fixer, but we, we need a savior in our lives, and we need to be made right, and Jesus is the only way that that can happen for us. Now, if you've been here the last few weeks, you, you would have seen that we've been learning about defining moments in the Bible. Um, it's been a really great study that we've gone through, just seeing people meeting Jesus usually for the first time, and, and that moment where just everything clicks in their life, and they, are, they were once these broken people, and now they are made whole, and now they are able to do what God had purposed them to do. Now, if you were here last week, you would have heard the testimonies of, of Kevin and Amanda and James, and if you weren't here last week, I strongly encourage you to get online, go to our website, or find the podcast and listen to that, because it's just so amazing to see how the same Jesus, the same story, the same gospel that affected all these people 2,000 years ago in the Bible is still changing lives today. It's still turning lives upside down, it's still bringing home prodigal sons, it makes things right. <laughs> But it really got me wondering, um, why do some people catch that Jesus bug and have a radical transformation occur in their lives and other people remain immune to it? Why did James come home when there are countless young daughters and sons that remain prodigal in their sin? And why were Kevin and Amanda convicted 
by the Holy Spirit for living together outside of God's good plan for marriage when so many people just don't seem to, to see that as an issue? Why did so many people, even in the Bible, though, <laughs> encounter Jesus and, and they immediately see him as Lord while there's a whole other crowd of people that saw Jesus and they just wanted him gone? Now, when you think about it, it it's quite clear that in the Bible we see that Jesus tends to divide people. And this can really go against the grain of society to stand behind Jesus and to uphold his word and uphold his principles because when people are presented with who he really is, they really are left with a simple two-choice decision. You either accept who he is or you reject who he is. And that decision will have consequences for what happens next in our life. So today, let's examine a scripture. And like I said, it was, it's been working on me for about a month and, and I've... I've I read it, and I saw people that accepted Jesus for who he was, and I saw people that rejected Jesus for who he was. Let's read that today, and um, yeah, let's see what God does. So, if you have a Bible, turn with me to Mark 5. The scripture should be behind me on the screen as well, but if you don't have a Bible, feel free to use one of those Bibles in the chair pockets. Um, We're going to be mostly in Mark 5 today. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. It says this. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, But he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a herd of great pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us into the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission, and the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs and the herd, numbering about 2,000 rushing down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has mercy on you. And, when, and he went away and began to... Pr- claim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. 
Wow, that's, that's quite a story there. Um, here we see Jesus traveling across the sea and immediately a man that's tormented by a legion of demons. And now, if that word sort of sounds odd to you, in first century AD, a legion was typically 6,000 soldiers. So we don't know how many demons were really in this guy, but it was a lot, okay? And the demons were all very aware of who Jesus was. They even confessed who he was. They said, Jesus, son of the most high God. And they recognized that they were no match for Jesus's power at all. And can we just pause and and marvel at that? I mean, they saw Jesus as, okay, we cannot do anything in his presence. (laughs) But you know, the enemy is powerful. I mean, look at the way they tortured this poor man's soul. No one had the strength to subdue him. He cried out at night. He cut himself in anguish. He was naked. The power of the enemy was so enslaving that he lived among the tombs. And those people that he once called friends and family, they were shackling him, chaining him up. And the story, it begins so sad. And you think about all the years that could have been wasted or all the years that this man lived in anguish and pain and suffering. So Jesus gets out of the boat and immediately this guy appears and Jesus tells the demons to come out of the man and the man kneels before Jesus and a plea is made that the demons not be sent out of the country. And it's curious, in Luke's account of the same story, um, the demons ask to not be sent back to the bottomless pit. And so things get even weirder, though, when the demons ask to be sent into a massive herd of pigs nearby, and Jesus actually allows it, and the pigs run straight into the, the sea, and they drown themselves. <laughs> Those watching the pigs were immediately, they run into the town, and they tell everybody what's happening, and the crowd comes, and they see the man that was once the town menace. Now, you know, the guy... The guy that used to live among the dead and, and run around bleeding and naked and screaming and, and howling, and he was now sitting down with clothes next to Jesus. And the people see their pigs floating or sinking, and they're in the lake, and they just begin to beg Jesus, leave, go, please leave. And Jesus gets back into the boat. And the once-possessed man begs Jesus, please let me come with you. And Jesus tells him to stay and to tell his story to the region, which he does. <laughs> you know, if, if you were like me, you might be asking, what in the world is happening here? <laughs> I mean, we see demons addressing Jesus as the son of the most high God. We see pigs committing mass suicide, bewildered townspeople running and just asking Jesus to please leave. And Jesus denying a good desire of a man that was radically transformed to follow him. But, you know, I really think we can learn a lot from this text. So let's, let's get in it. The first point that I want to look at is that Jesus pursues us even when we are dead. This shows us his goodness. Let's make sure we understand who Jesus is. Jesus is by no means a weak God. <laughs> let's never misconstrue his grace, his mercy, and his forgiveness for weakness. His pursuit of you Even in your sin is only a pursuit that can be made by a supreme being, a supreme loving being. 
He loved us when we are still enemies. Even at our worst, he loved us enough to come to us in our greatest need. Do you remember that verse that James shared last week? It, it was in Ephesians 2, and I just want to remind us of it. It says, it's by Paul, and he's addressing the church in Ephesus, and it says this. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Now the story of the, the Gerasene demoniac is a visual example of Ephesians 2. I really don't think it could be painted any more beautifully. The man was guided by demons, literally, you know, under the enslavement of the prince of the power of the air, or Satan. And look where it took him. Look at the, the life of pain and torment and solitude and those around him. They, they knew no way to help him, so they chained him up. And he lived this life of just meaningless torture. But God, being rich in mercy, and his mercy actually moved him. It wasn't just a fleeting feeling of compassion uh, or, or sorrow. His mercy initiated an act to actually do something about it, to do something about that man. Jesus crossed the lake. And you know, he, he intentionally set out to do this, to find that lost soul. You know, if, if you have your Bibles open, you might see in the previous ending of that chapter, in chapter 4, you see that they went through this intense storm on that lake. And the disciples themselves, they were just, they were begging Jesus, Jesus, please wake up, we're going to die, we're going to die. He went through that storm just to get to this guy got to understand, when, when Jesus confronts you and when you find yourself in front of Jesus, it's not happenstance. It's not, wow, what a coincidence. It's, it's not an accident even that you are here today hearing this sermon. If you would examine the scriptures and see how God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit move and take that into account when you find yourself in a position when you are standing before him, you've got to make up your minds when you're confronted by Jesus. When you come before him, reading, you know, reading his word or in prayer or in our time of worship, and, and you feel the, like Jesus is right before you, you can't ignore him. And your response to him will change the course of your life. Remember what he's gone through to just be able to address you, to stand before you. And there are only two options, I'm afraid. Like I said before, and, and this story highlights it well. You either beg him to stay or you beg him to leave. And when we say it like that, it seems very clear. But, you know, Jesus, he offers us forgiveness of sins and a purpose-filled remainder of our time on earth and the key to eternal life with our creator. Why would we ever turn that down? And we see it here in the story. Jesus can be quite disrupting, <laughs> It looked like he really messed up some pig farmer's economic situation. And what if he changes other things? 
things that I really don't want to let go of. Because you see, you cannot hold Jesus at arm's length. You cannot just say, "Mm, I'll let you just sort of into my life, Jesus. I can see how some people might not find that appealing. I mean, is he demanding? Yes. Does he change your life? Yes, he does. But is he worth it? You know, those townspeople, they witnessed Jesus. They probably knew who he was, or at the very least, they they knew he was a man unlike any other man they had met before. They saw the results of a man being freed from demonic possession, and yet they asked him to leave. They were dead, and they remained dead because they were not willing to receive Jesus. It seems hard to believe that they saw the miracle, or at the very least, they saw the result of that miracle, and yet they say, please, Jesus, no more. Please go. You know, cling to our past comforts can appear safer than a new future with Jesus, but we have to recognize what God has already done just to meet you. I'm not talking about even crossing a lake. He came to the earth and he paid the ultimate price just so that you could follow him. His goodness can be trusted because he came to find you while you were still dead in your sins. He is good. The second point I want to highlight is that Jesus illuminates all things and calls us into the light. I want to read this verse in in 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2.9, it should be up behind me, and it says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. (laughs) Each person must come to the grasp with a simple question. You have to ask yourself, is Jesus really worth it? Is he worth coming out of the darkness and into the marvelous light? (laughs) For the poor man in the tombs, something called him out. And it called him out while he was still (laughs) demon-possessed. It called him out while he was still naked and bleeding and overwhelmingly inappropriate to stand before a king. It says this in Mark 5, And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. You know, Jesus' presence must have been that marvelous light, and it pierced the darkness. It pierced that hardened soul that was being tormented by thousands of demons And that man, he just ran out and he took the position of a beggar, throwing himself at the feet of Jesus. And and that image right there reminds me of another encounter, of a first encounter with Jesus. The same guy who wrote that that passage that I just read in, in 1 Peter. And Peter, this guy, he's such a perfect example for us, not because he's this perfect man, but he, he was so messed up. He was a true human with, with flaws like you and me. And do you remember how he was called? I mean, so Jesus was teaching by the sea. It happened to be that same sea that, that he um, crossed as well. And, and he was teaching, and there were so many people around him, and people couldn't, they couldn't even hear Jesus. And so Jesus finds Peter, and he sees that Peter has a boat, and Peter was cleaning off his nets because he had just had a failed attempt at fishing the whole night before. 
And he asks Peter, Peter, can I get in your boat and can you push me off just a little bit so that people can hear me and I can teach? So Peter, he, he, he says, yeah. And so he gets in the boat and he starts teaching and he's teaching in these parables and people's eyes are being opened and they're just in awe of, of the teaching, the ability for this man to teach. And, and then afterwards, you know, Peter, he's probably tired from fishing all night and, and Jesus says to him, why don't you go out one more time and throw your nets again? And that doesn't really make sense. It was not the right time to go fishing. He had just tried to fish all night and he caught nothing at all, but he does it and he gets in the boat and they throw the net and it's such a catch that his boat and neither his friend's boat together can contain all the fish. And his reaction, when Peter realizes that Jesus is the real deal, he's not just the guy that's teaching with authority, he is authority, he is Lord. He throws himself at Jesus' knees and he cries out, get away from me, for I'm a sinful man. And that response, it, it caused just this, this questioning in my mind of why is it that we respond to Jesus like that sometimes? Why is it that we see his holiness and we see his goodness and instead of, of running to it, we cry out, please, just get away from me because I cannot handle it. It's because sin loves darkness. And Jesus, being light of the world, his nature and his person expels that darkness. Light expels darkness and it exposes everything. And if we're hiding in the darkness and we're confronted by our reality, that can be extremely painful. Jesus, the holy king, he expels all darkness. And a meeting with Jesus is a close-up examination of all your defects. It's like holding up a mirror and pointing out every little flaw, every little blemish. You cannot hide any imperfection from him. We must then make a crucial decision do you run to him or do you run from him? Because holding on to sin will only hold you back. And holding on to Jesus will give you freedom from your sin. And, you know, I don't think Peter would have chosen to leave his boat, leave his nets, leave all that fish that he caught <laughs> to follow Jesus if he doubted Jesus' identity or if he doubted Jesus' goodness or if he doubted Jesus' power he did. He left everything. And when he was confronted with Jesus' holy identity and his sinful nature cried out, Lord, get away, Jesus responded with a loving invitation of a life far greater than Peter could have ever even dreamed of. And the fact is that Jesus chose Peter's boat. He knew Peter was. He knew the sin in his life, yet Jesus chose Peter. And if he is calling you out today, and if you don't already, if you don't already follow him and you feel like he's calling you, you've got to understand that he, he already knows everything about you and he's choosing you still and he can handle what you're dealing with. Let, let me just jump back real quick to that restaurant illustration. Imagine the owner of the restaurant and of, of those kitchens and storerooms. And they, they refuse to accept the reason that the restaurant is failing due to the roaches. And they don't want to toss out the garbage. But instead, they, they print new menus or, 
I don't know, they fix up the decor in their dining area, or maybe they want to change their, their brand or evaluate their marketing strategy. Isn't that the way how sometimes we act? You know, and sin is so content to just be hidden in our storerooms and of our life, and, and because that's where it can grow, and that's where it can multiply, and that's where it can really do the most damage. Jesus, he won't allow it, though. He comes in, and he really does clean the house. <laughs> that might mean throwing out rotten things, and that might mean changing some of our, the ways that we live. <laughs> Jesus is never surprised by the sin in our lives, but if you don't ever give it to him, then how are you ever actually going to be free? When Jesus arrives and he shines his light, all our work that we try to do is, all the work that we try to you know, fix up our own lives, it's, it's shown to be meaningless. I mean, we are dead. We are born dead, basically. We need life. Many of us are trying to make a dead body breathe by putting on makeup, or whatever you want to do to, to try to make yourself look like you're alive. But that's, that's just exhausting. It's enslaving. And we surround ourselves with other dead people, and that, that becomes our norm. But that's not what Jesus has for us. He offers life. And when sin says hide, Jesus pursues us. When Jesus calls you out of the darkness, you do have to give him an answer. and Don't let the love of sin stop you. If you're having a really hard time believing that you could actually let go of that thing in your mind, you've got to pray, God, just change my heart. I don't know how to give this up to you. I don't know how to, to change. Pray that God would change your heart. The one who knows you and the one who, who, who made you, he knows you better than anybody in this world. He loves you more than anybody in this world could love you. But those people of Gerasim, they're not running to grab their sick or the other demon-possessed people. Or, or They just come to him and they say, please leave. We, we, can't, we can't have you here. You're changing too many things. You're, you're making this really uncomfortable for me. Perhaps they were afraid that Jesus would cause more disturbances if he was allowed to be with them. Maybe they couldn't fathom that a holy God would love such a sinful, dead-in-their-trespasses people. Maybe that just, that was not even fathomable in their eyes. And those watching, they were bewildered, and they were upset, and they begged him to leave. They just couldn't have him in their lives because it would be too much change. What if he asked me to sell things or change things? Or what if they asked me to follow him? What if he asked me to do something that was uncomfortable? They closed their eyes. They, they recognized he was a powerful man, but they didn't recognize his title and his purpose of bringing them out of darkness and into the light. My third point that I want to make from this passage is that Jesus is in control. Now, this passage about the legion of demons, it's always stuck out to me, and partly because I just didn't understand it, it really just seemed chaotic. I mean, 
almost like things were happening that weren't supposed to be happening. It really looks like a PR fiasco for Jesus. I mean, imagine the newspapers back then, you know, Jesus of Nazareth responsible for the shortage of bacon and all of the Middle East. It, it looked really bad, you know. The people didn't like Jesus. <laughs> they were on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus was teaching the people, but he, he purposely left that group and went across the lake, through the storm, to the home of the man, the tombs of the Gerasenes. And he encounters the man, and the demons beg to be sent into the swine, and that's odd, you know, why, why would that happen? But even, even odder, it seems like, Jesus allows it. And for the longest time, you know, I assumed that the pigs just freaked out because the demons didn't know how to do the pig controls, or uh, I don't know, maybe, but... But think about it with me. What does Satan want to do more than harden the heart of people to not receive Jesus as Lord? And that's what happened. The people saw Jesus. They saw the once-possessed man. They saw their sinking livelihood, and they said, Oh, Jesus, we, we can't have you here. You've just messed everything up. So did Jesus really just go across that lake to release one soul from bondage? He could have. But if that were the case, then why didn't Jesus allow him to get in the boat with him, to follow him? I'm sure he would have been a far better disciple than Judas was. But Jesus told him to stay because he had a purpose for that man. And his purpose was actually to proclaim what Jesus had done in his pagan city. Let's look back what it says in verse 18. It says, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. You know, when you look into it, the Decapolis is actually a group of 10 cities. And they were, heavily, they were heavily influenced by the pagan Greek and the Roman cultures. Now, obviously, we see pig farming, something that was not allowed under Jewish law. And Jesus sends him out simply to just tell his story. And everyone marveled at that story. The man that used to plague the tombs was now openly sharing his faith <laughs> And his story of redemption, the wild demon man had become one of Christ's first missionaries going out and telling people about what God had done in his life, what Jesus had done in his life. And his presence was a constant reminder to the people that Jesus was changing lives. He was freeing and healing people. Now, can't you see how Jesus' deliberate action of going across the sea to free this one man was set as a beautiful piece to God's plan for that area, for reaching the lost, for reaching those that are in darkness, and issued a call, a call to just come out of the darkness and into this glorious light. It's amazing to see it. So what does this mean for us, church? This story, I know it's a very extreme story, and what I want us to take from it is that Jesus, he pulls you out of the darkness for a reason. Have you run 
to kneel at Jesus' feet, surrendering everything to him. I mean, I get it. This man had nothing, literally. He, he didn't even have clothes on his back. He was naked. All he had were scars from his past. So maybe him surrendering all to Jesus may not be such a big deal for you guys. But I want you to consider, what do you have that is more valuable than Jesus? And if something comes to mind, do you really know Jesus and know what he's gone through to be able to address you, for you to be able to address him? If something has taken his place, what is it? You know, maybe, maybe this is where you want to be. You know, you, you want to follow Jesus. You want to be on your knees before him, but you're struggling with something, and you just don't know how to give it to him. Maybe you're here today, and you're feeling the discomfort of having God's word illuminate certain areas of your life, and maybe the light just seems too bright. And you'd rather that feeling disappear. And maybe you're thinking that coming here this morning was a mistake, (laughs) that this Jesus guy is just going to ask me to give up too much. And maybe you're thinking about begging Jesus, just leave, just please go. But please don't. If you don't know what to do, just just throw yourself at his feet. (laughs) Acknowledge that he is Lord and ask him to change your heart. That's all we can do because we can't do anything under our own power. It's only him. He's the only one that can give us life, and he's the only one that can change us. I want to conclude with reading a little bit more of Ephesians 2. I'm going to start in verse 4 and end at 10. It says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift from God, not a result of works so that no one may boast, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This verse tells us that you were created for a purpose, that you are his workmanship, that we were broken people desperately needing a savior. So as I said before, we all must come to a conclusion about who Jesus is. Are we going to run to him and beg to be with him? Or are we going to say, Jesus, please leave and beg him to go? If you believe that Jesus pursues us even while we are dead in our tangled, sinful lives, when we were unable to do anything to escape the bondage of sin, if you believe that, then you must know that he is good. And if you believe that he calls us out of the darkness and to walk into his marvelous light, only possible by his sacrifice on the cross and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, if you believe that, then you have to know that he is holy. And if you believe that Jesus is in control, 
and that he conquered both sin and death, and that he is able to use those once called children of wrath to be part of his glorious plan, you must know that he is powerful. And church, if we have a good, holy, and powerful God, do you know him? And do you trust him? Maybe you struggle, and it's, that's normal. Maybe you struggle with one of those three words. Maybe you know that he is holy and powerful, but you're, you're really struggling knowing that he's good. And so you don't know if you can come to him because you don't know if you will be accepted or not. You must know he's good. Maybe you struggle, that you, you know that he's good and you know that he's holy, but you just don't know if he really has the power to change your life. You've got to see that he's powerful and that he can change you. And maybe, I don't know, maybe you know that he's good and he's powerful, but you've, you've been living in darkness and you don't know how to come out into the light. See his holiness and see him just calling you out of the darkness and into his holy, marvelous light. If you don't know him, and if you don't know even how to address him, just start off with how Peter and this man did. Just bring yourself to your knees before him and say, God, <laughs> I know you're powerful. I know you're good and I know you're holy. Change me. Do something in me. Let's pray, church. Jesus, we, we are so thankful for your word and we are so thankful for just this, this image of Ephesians 2 that was painted out with this man from Gerasene and how this image is, is so powerful that it can continue to change lives because it's your holy word and because you are so powerful, God. You're so good as well. Lord, I pray for those people that are struggling Maybe they don't know the, your goodness or they don't know what it means to, to live holy lives. Maybe they don't know what it means. Uh, they, they doubt your power, Lord. Whatever it is that they're dealing with now, Lord, I pray that you would just, just open up their eyes. That even though it might hurt to see this glorious light shining in their life and it, it might cause them to want to retreat or cause them to run away, Lord, I pray that that they would be bold enough to, to kneel before you and just surrender everything to you, God. I pray that, that through this, this time of worship and even the time afterwards, if, if anybody is, is struggling with letting go of something or struggling with just not knowing who you are, Lord, that, that you would address it and that you would cause them to act. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. And we thank you just for who you are. In your name we pray. Amen.